What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, I'm here with Austin Reef, the co-founder of Morning Brew. Morning Brew is an incredibly impressive business. On your website, you describe it as the daily email that makes reading the news actually enjoyable. And I think last year you generated over $20 million in revenue with just 33 employees. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is that is more or less correct. I think 33 was probably halfway through the year, but something like that, yeah. Those are pretty crazy numbers. And what's even crazier is that you started this thing as a side project in college in 2015, and you never raised any money from VCs. And somehow it's turned into this like behemoth media company that's generating millions of dollars. You have millions of subscribers. It's a pretty long way to go, basically, from, from people who weren't necessarily imagining in the beginning that you could ever build something this big. So it's funny you mentioned that. I, I don't think that is, I think that is the reason why it got to be so big, because we didn't plan things out at the beginning. I think a lot of consumer businesses in general, they're too, they're like fake, right? Up front, it's very uh, staged, or especially raise VC money, right? You have to build community early, right? You have to build this brand early and for us it was so authentic because it was just us we were just creating content you know we thought this was a good idea but we never thought it'd be a big business and i think that is why it succeeded because we started it when i was a sophomore in college so we had two years where there was no pressure to make money no pressure to is it a company is it not it was just oh it's a college thing and because of that it just grew there was no pressure it grew so authentically and i think that is so often when people think about Morning Brew, they think about starting in 2017 or 2018 when we went full time. If not for those two years, though, where we didn't have to pay ourselves salaries, we didn't have to care what people thought, you know, we had small uh, mistakes didn't matter because we had a few number of subscribers. Like if not for those two years, we wouldn't be where we are. And so I think it's actually, you know, like a feature, not a bug. I think about this with indie hackers, too, because I joined Stripe four years ago today. Today is my Stripe anniversary. I got a little ping in Slack. And it's funny because, you know, the goal has always been growth, make any hackers bigger, more impactful, better. But when you're thinking about that constantly and you're kind of worried about your performance, you tend to put deadlines on things. You tend to say, okay, I'm going to only do things that can work in a really big way in the next three to six months or six to nine months or something like that, which excludes a whole bunch of stuff that you could be doing that might just make your product better or more interesting or more useful because you're trying to hit these metrics. So I'm super curious, like what you were doing during these two years at college that wasn't like pedal to the metal. We care about what some VCs think and was just like authentically figuring out your business that helps you out later on. Yeah. So, so there were two things, right? Let's talk about growth and then let's talk about product expansion. In terms of growth, we had no money. So it had to grow organically. We had to figure out organic growth. It's the classic thing where sometimes, you know, people say, oh, a company got overcapitalized. They threw money at a problem. We had no money to throw at the biggest problem, which is distribution. I'm a big believer that distribution is is you know in the product distribution war. They're both obviously very important. Distribution in my mind is more important, and we had to figure it out. And so we went to clubs and classes at Michigan, and we would just pitch it. And we we first realized 
No one's paying attention. It's the beginning of an Econ 101 class. There's 500 kids in here. We only have a thousand subscribers. We can grow our subscriber base 50% simply by getting all these people signed up. And we pitch our hearts out and people would be interested. And I go to my computer and refresh. I have like two new subscribers. And we'd be like, well, how, what do we do? So we started passing, this is, this is a true story. We'd pass around a piece of paper and get everyone to write their email down. And after class, I'd sit outside the lecture hall and just manually type in everyone's email into the landing page one by one. It's the classic, it's Paul Graham, do things that don't scale. Before I even knew who Paul Graham was, but it, was, it wasn't do things that don't scale, it was do the only things we could have possibly done. And because of that, we knew we had product market fit because people weren't churning. So that's the growth thing. The product thing, you know, we had people, big media execs reaching out to us. Remember 2015, BuzzFeed's raising tens or hundreds of millions. Vice is raising hundreds of millions. These people are raising a ton of capital and people are saying, hey, create video, create this, create that. And we're out there being like, we're just gonna write our newsletter. You know, we're just gonna write our simple newsletter. And it, it's just funny because in hindsight, it was just so simple. Like we thought it was so complicated what we were doing and it was so easy to look at the business now versus then. There's a, uh, a book I just finished reading called Made to Stick. And it's all about how to craft a message or a story that actually sticks with people over time and then, you know, allows them to share it or that just stands the test of time. And they got like, I think five or six principles, but the very, very first one that they say you need more than any other principle is just simplicity. Way too many people try to craft a message that's got 15 moving parts and it's got 10 different value propositions or whatever. You know, you're making a, a newsletter and it's for people like X and people like Y and people like Z. And they're like, no, you got to get rid of all that. And it's super hard when you're the one building a product or doing research and you have to communicate to people why it's valuable to throw stuff away because you've put like so much time and effort into this, this newsletter, so much time and effort into your research. You want people to know all the bells and whistles, but for them, they describe basically finding the core of your idea as being the most important thing that if nothing else gets communicated, you need to communicate this and then literally just cut everything else, no matter how painful it is. And for the morning brew, I was looking at some of your tweets. You talked about how. Yeah, you wanted your newsletter to be one thing, which is you wanted to write it in a conversational tone for intellectually curious readers. How did you decide on having a conversational newsletter? So that was the, that was the origin. It was really my co-founder. He was watching his friends struggle to learn about the business world. And there are all these resources out there. Like you walk into Michigan where we went to business school, there were a stack of 20 Wall Street journals every day. No one would read that. And people always talk about user research. Didn't take user research to realize why people weren't reading the journal. It's the same reason I wasn't reading the journal. It was dry, it was long, it was boring. And so what's the opposite of that? Fun and engaging. And there were other companies at the time just starting to create content, the skim being the biggest one, in a, t in a really strong tone. We didn't want to copy the skim's tone at all, but we said, what if we could take what they were doing for pop culture, for women, but do it our way. Like, what is our way? And, and the interesting thing was Alex and I, we weren't the best writers. We couldn't, you know, we could write a sentence or two or maybe a paragraph in this tone, but we couldn't write the whole newsletter in this tone, but we could very much see eye to eye. Like day one, we knew, you know, we knew what we were talking about. We knew what the tone was. And so, so yeah, it was just by figuring out like, you know, the journal is so boring, we can do it better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what I like about it is the fact that you weren't discouraged by the fact that other people were already sending emails telling people about the news. It wasn't so much, hey, we need to, to differentiate by starting a completely different product that no one's ever done before. It was more like, hey, we already know that people like the news, people need the news, but we're just gonna do it slightly differently. We're gonna find our own niche. We're gonna see what other people were doing poorly and we're gonna do that well. 
And I think that's kind of a universal principle. Almost everybody I talk to on the show who's doing really well is solving kind of like a tried and true problem that was already being solved well before them by, you know, a different company in a different way. And they just found a way to differentiate. I mean, there, there are a couple different types of products, right? There are products who are doing things completely new, like completely revolutionary. And there are people who are doing things that are just a little bit better in a lot of different ways. And if you do something a little bit better in terms of delivery, right, we weren't the first people sending out a newsletter, but most media companies, they monetize via web traffic. And so their newsletter had one goal, to get people back to their website. Our newsletter had one goal, and it was to keep people on the newsletter. And that allowed us just to create a different product that really wasn't that different, but it had a lot of things that actually made it very different. So tell me more about this process of like trying to get college students to sign up for a news newsletter. Because even now, like thinking about it, like, when I was in college, I wasn't really concerned about the news. Like I remember I found out about Hurricane Katrina like a week and a half after it happened because I was just focusing on like schoolwork and hanging out with my friends and like, you know, like parties. I just, I didn't care about the news and I don't think I would have signed up for a newsletter on the news. What were you doing besides just going to classes and getting everybody to write down their emails so that you could add them to your list? It starts with who we targeted. We didn't target every college kid. We targeted the kids who needed this, right? So we started with kids who were prepping for job interviews. And so we pitched as like, hey, you have to prep. You're spending hours a week. Might as well read this. It's five minutes a day and you, you seem a lot smarter. And starting with those kids and starting with the kids who were like, you know, the central nodes, the president of business schools, the president of business clubs, the the guy or the girl who who everyone just like looked to. Right. If we get them reading, they would share it with all their friends. Okay. So super targeted, kind of like uh, you're talking like the influencers of college, really. I watched this, uh, this video last year. It was basically how to do SEO. And they were talking about growing your blog. And like part of it was like, okay, you can grow through something that's got sort of a cumulative traffic like uh, SEO. But also like a lot of people were seduced by this idea of virality. And they had uh, a research study in there that broke down how virality actually works. And so most of us think that the way that virality works is you share something with one person and then they share it with two people and they share it with four people and eight people and it spreads and pretty soon the entire internet's reading your amazing blog post or whatever. But this uh, research firm actually analyzed how things spread on social media and Twitter, and it's very influencer based. So basically, you know, a few big influencers will tweet something or share something, and then like their whole audience will see it. And then every single layer down the pyramid further, fewer and fewer and fewer people see it. So actually what you really want to do is get as many influencers to see whatever it is that you're doing, or in your case, you know, class president, most popular kid at school, leader of the student group, and then they all disseminate it to people who will like progressively share it with fewer and fewer people, but it doesn't matter because the influencers just know so many people. You know what this reminds me of? Do you, and he, he's not doing it anymore, I assume it's because he now works at A16Z, but Sriram, uh, he used to work at Twitter. He started this this interview series, the Observer, Knowledge Observer, Observer Effect, something like that. I can't remember the name. And he had some great guests, don't get me wrong. They were great interviews. But you'd think from the response of Twitter that this guy was was doing rockets. He, he was he was revealing something the world had never seen. He shut down Twitter. And I'd read it and I'd be like, yeah, it's really interesting, but it's just an interview. And again, I'm not insulting at all. It was a great interview. But then you realize like, oh, wait, Mark Andreessen is sharing. Yeah, the first one was Mark Andreessen, right? And so he's sharing it. And like you get all these people. And I think, you know, the VC industry is like a little herd mentality, like you're saying. It's it's influencer driven. And so, oh, this person with 200,000 followers tweeted. Oh, now I'll look like a thought leader if I can tweet it before my friends do it. And, and so I just laugh because I'm like, yeah, they're great interviews, but they're just interviews. People were acting like it was like a cure cancer. 
I'm looking at his site right now, The Observer Effect. He's actually doing a ton of interviews on Clubhouse now. I think he has like the biggest show on Clubhouse called like the Good Time Club or something. But like he only interviewed three people for The Observer Effect. Mark Andreessen, Daniel Ack, the CEO of Spotify, and then Toby, the CEO of Shopify. And it's like, these are all humongous names, but exactly what you said happened. Everybody just said like, oh, there's a cool interview with this person somehow got other influencers to share and like that's the news of the day that's the cool thing to do to talk about how amazing this interview is i had kind of a similar thing happen to me on twitter the other day where i tweeted my second most popular tweet of all time it got like 1500 likes and it was because nat eliason had this tweet where he said i know a lot of smart people and not a single one of them wants their kids to go to college and then everybody was talking about it that tweet got like 4,000 likes tons of famous people were just retweeting it and sharing it and then I just quote tweeted it and was like, ah, actually, I had a great time in college. And like, here's like the four benefits that I got. And it took me like five seconds to come up with my tweet and I just sent it out. And like, it got a ton of steam, not because it was some brilliant, like genius tweet, but because everybody was just talking about that that day. All the sort of major influencers on Twitter wanted to like weigh in with their opinion. And like, that just sort of carried the wave. So I guess it's something that applies to pretty much any business. If you could just figure out what everybody's talking about and who are the biggest names talking about it, get on their radar, you're going to grow and you're going to spread. But I'm sure you saw yesterday, or maybe you didn't, but the the CEO who, who talked about her EA, this tweet went viral because this woman wrote a tweet storm. I didn't even read it. You know, I just saw the, the people making fun of it. She wrote a tweet storm. It was basically like, here, I'm so efficient. I can do all these things. I can take David, you know, I can take David Perel's course. I can do this. I can do this. All because my EA is amazing. And list what her EA does. And it's like, that's like basically what like a COO does. Or like, you know, it's not a, the job of an EA. And everyone mocked it. And everyone was, everyone was piling on and going viral. And then that was bringing awareness to the initial tweet. I'm looking at one of the uh, the mocking tweets right now. It's got like 4,000 likes. And it says, the most undervalued asset of a CEO is an executive assistant. My EA writes software, hires employees, raises VC, completes financial projections, and submits reports to regulatory agencies. <laughs> and it's like 70 quotes, 250 likes. Just like, I don't even, I don't even link to the original tweet. But it's like, you know, they're subtweeting somebody. Uh, and if your subtweet can get 4,000 likes, then the original tweet must have blown up. Something interesting happens on Twitter when something can be good or bad, doesn't really matter. But once it gets to a certain point, people hate it, no matter how good a tweet is. So someone can give really good advice on Twitter, right? Like, yeah, it can be platitudes or whatever, really good advice. And people love it. And you can actually go back in the, the quote tweet history or the replies history and see. And people like, oh, this is awesome, right? But then it gets a thousand likes. And then there's some like hatred, right? Because it gets outside that bubble. And then you get to 10, 20,000 likes. And people are like, oh, like this tweet isn't even that good. And it's like, yeah, but the original tweeter didn't, didn't, wasn't like, oh, I'm going to tweet something that's good only up to 10,000 likes. And then it's not, it's not 20,000 likes good. It happens like with the pumps all the time. Like, you know, the pumps will tweet something and someone will be like, it's crazy. It's got 40,000 likes. And it's like, it's not his fault. It got 40,000 likes. He just posted some content to the people world. People liked it. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's just envy, you know, like everybody will be happy for their friend if their friend like, you know, gets a good job or gets a promotion. But if your friend like, wins the lottery, then suddenly people start feeling a little bit different. Like, hey, you know, this guy's not that cool. Why, why don't I have all these millions of dollars, et cetera? And I've seen people talk about tweets in the exact same way. Like uh, Greg Eisenberg, a mutual friend of ours, had this giant tweet story. I don't know exactly how many likes it got, but it was mega. It was like 50,000 likes or something crazy. And he's like, I talked to five billionaires last week. Here's what I learned. And that was like a pretty interesting tweet thread. It wasn't like mind-blowingly amazing, but it was fine. And then, like you said, for whatever reason, it just took off. It resonated. And then the second it gets past a certain point, everybody stops saying, hey, was this a good tweet thread? And they start saying, hey, does this thread deserve to get all this traffic? And how dare he you know, be so successful with this thing that I could have tweeted, but I didn't think of. And it's funny to watch it happen. It's part of the reason why I don't care 
that much about Twitter. Like you and I are part of this like 100K iMessage group where it's like, I don't know, five or six people who are trying to get to 100,000 followers on Twitter. And I checked it this morning. I was like, oh, Austin's coming on the show. Let me see what's going on in 100K Club. And I realized I was kicked out two weeks ago <laughs> for never participating and never commenting or saying anything, which is completely fair. <laughs> but I, I probably was a person in the group who cared the least. Like I just didn't do anything to get to 100K. You might be like one level above me. You're pretty close. You're at like 70,000 Twitter followers. But uh, I love the way you use Twitter. I love like the fact that you have this like thread of threads pinned to the top of your profile where before this episode, I can go and see like, what does Austin think about Morning Brew? And you've tweeted like every insight that you've learned from Morning Brew and a bunch of different threads. And it's super valuable and useful for anybody who wants to go learn and how you did it. I can't stand when people critique other people's Twitters. With that being said, I tweet when I have something to say. I don't tweet for the sake of tweeting. So you'll see in that thread earlier this year, I had a bunch of things I wanted to say and I sat down, I said them all. And so I haven't really tweet stormed and I mean, maybe there's like one in the last two or three months. And that's why my growth has gone down so much. I grew 25,000 in January. I grew like, I don't even know, three or 4,000 in the last month just because I haven't tweeted that much recently or at least I haven't tweeted things that get followers. The thing about Twitter is it's this weird, unholy combination of people just like, just shooting the shit and just saying personal stuff, talking to their friends, saying, talking about what they ate for breakfast and other people who are like hardcore marketers trying to grow. And usually you don't see those two things in the same place. Like if you go to Amazon and you look at books, there's no one who's like casually communicating by writing a book, you know? That's like, you only do that if you're really trying to reach an audience. Same with like newsletters. Like the vast majority of newsletters are people actually trying really hard to grow their newsletters. But Twitter, I think people who are using it for personal reasons might feel it's super unnatural to see someone else who's like, you know, going out and researching stories and like tweaking every single word of their tweet and, you know, make it like copywriting perfection and grow really big. And I agree with you. There's really no wrong way to use Twitter. Just let everybody do the thing they want to do. You know what it is? It's good envy practice. If you find yourself getting really pissed off at people on Twitter for tweeting things that are doing really well, it's a good opportunity to check in with yourself and ask, am I envious? And how do I overcome this feeling right now? And it's kind of cool because there's not that many opportunities in life to do that. But with Twitter, you can do it every single day because there's always dumb threads that are getting thousands of retweets and you can just check in with yourself. So maybe I'll start using Twitter for that. <laughs> Your tweets are super helpful. And I want to go through some of them because they, they tell Morning Brew's story pretty well. So one of the, I think, stories from your early days is you had, what is it called? Your Brew Ambassador program. Great name. And you talked about how this actually was, was one of the things that helped you grow the most. And I've actually seen other employees at Morning Brew write about this in other places. So it's clearly like a big part of your business. I think someone said it's like referrals are responsible for something like 30% of your subscribers, which is crazy. Uh, what's the Brew Ambassador program? How did it work? What's the story there? I told you before that Alex and I were going to clubs and classes and finding these central nodes at business schools and getting people signed up for Morning Brew. We then thought, okay, what if we can get our friends to do this at other schools too, and our readers at other schools, and build this out? So that was the OG Morning Brew Ambassador Program. And so then we thought to ourselves, and we weren't the first people to ever do this, we thought, okay, what if we can turn everyone into an ambassador? Built out the referral program, and the referral program is what gets all that traffic. And when it comes down to a referral program, there's a few components. First is letting people know there is a referral program. Two, making sure it's as easy as possible to share. And three, aligning incentives with your power users or people who you want to share or think will share. You don't want to create rewards for your, your median user. You want to create rewards for your top decile user. And why is that? Because they're going to be the people who do all the referrals anyway? Uh, the way I think about it is, you know, there are certain people who critique pricing of online classes, right? Or online cohort-based school classes or courses or whatever. And they're like, I, I can't believe they charge $1,000. I 
I would never charge a dollar for an online, I would never pay a dollar for an online course. And it's like, yeah, but if you wouldn't pay at all for an online course, you're not in the total addressable market. So no one really cares about you. So no one's pricing based off of you. They're not pricing for the median. They're not saying, oh, well, there are 500 people who pay $1,000 and 500 people pay zero, therefore let me charge 500. Same thing with the referral program. There are a ton of people who would never refer. And so I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to encourage you to refer if you would never refer. I'm instead taking the people who love Morning Brew, want to represent it, want to, want to show people they read Morning Brew, and then giving them more of what they love. So more content, more swag, whatever. So that, that's the key thing about referral programs. Yeah, and you've got a few of those. I was scrolling down your Twitter. You've got one Sarah Rutledge, Sarah underscore Rutledge one, who tweeted just this morning, why, yes, I am the girl who got the Morning Brew logo tattooed on her leg. And she's got a beautiful picture of her leg and some sort of Japanese kimono and a picture of the Morning Brew coffee cup. So you've got a lot of people who are like your rabid ambassadors who want to share with you. How do you find these people? Like, how do you get people to be so obsessive about a newsletter that they want to get the Morning Brew logo tattooed on their leg and then brag about it on Twitter? There's a few things. First, when we started off, again, we weren't trying to build a rabid fan base. If we were, I don't think we would have. But because we weren't trying, we were just being authentic. It's just about authenticity. And it compounds over time. Authenticity compounds over time. It's impossibly authentic day one. You can't do something one day and be like, oh, I, I, this is like, you know, this is truly authentic. It takes time. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this is why I think referrals are so successful for us, is at first we used to kind of try to like hide the referral program and try to be like sneaky about it, make jokes. And one day we woke up, and it wasn't this simple, right? It took time. But basically one day we woke up, and we're like, we're giving away free content. We shouldn't feel bad if we're asking our users to just share it. And it's almost become like a meme, right? Where I'll be with people, and they'll be like, oh, this is the Morning Brew guy. And the, the person will be like, oh, I've never heard of Morning Brew. And they'll tell them what Morning Brew is, and they'll be like, oh, but use my referral code. And so it's built like this. The sub franchise where people think about that, like, and they, they, that's fun. It's gamified, and we, we do put in people's faces. And again, we probably turn off a few percent of people. But if you get pissed off because we ask you to share a free newsletter, you're probably not going to be the person who reads the newsletter every day. Like, it's just, it's just not you. And what's the incentive that like these power users actually want? Like, if I share, I'm a Morning Brew power subscriber. I'm sharing it with everyone I know. I'm referring, you know, 100 people a week. What am I getting in return? We actually just changed it. Uh, I'll tell you what it was historically and now what it is. So historically, it was the first referral you got for sharing three times was more Morning Brew content. So an exclusive Sunday edition. If you like Morning Brew, you probably really like Morning Brew. If you like enough to share it, you probably really like it enough to share it. And therefore, we're going to give you more content. Now we have three million readers. It's time to open up the Sunday edition to everyone. Make it unique. Make it, we're now calling it the Sunday edition, right? It's a little more glossy. It's like, you know, New York mag. Atlantic-esque, like our version of a magazine and a newsletter. And so now we picked our second most engaged with thing, and it's our trivia. So now you get a trivia game, and people love our trivia. And so we send you a, a little bit of trivia, and we'll see how that goes. And we're going to iterate and find things that work. Yeah, I love that. It's like, it's very exclusive. Anyone can get money, you know. It's very exclusive and aligned to what it is that you're doing, what people like. And like, who doesn't want to get in on like some secret edition of a thing they already love? You know, like if you're going to a college, like who doesn't want to be part of a secret group at that college? If you're subscribed to a newsletter or you're part of a forum, like who doesn't want to be? Like I remember when I was a kid, I had a, uh, a World of Warcraft guild when I was a teenager that I ran with my brother. And like you get 200 people in a guild, like you need some sort of hierarchy for like who tells other people what to do, who organizes things, etc. And it was really hard splitting things up because you would have people who were super competent. You're like, this person is 
they know what they're doing. They're very responsible. Like they should for sure be promoted. And then you would have people who are super loyal, but they weren't necessarily the most competent. It's like, this guy's been with us every night for two years, but like he honestly couldn't lead like a fish to water. Like he probably should not be in charge of anything. So how do you reward these people? And we ended up making kind of an exclusive group of people called like the core members and we gave them their own like unique forum. And so they got to feel as special as all the other people who were like in charge of stuff. And literally it was nothing other than they just get to, they got to have a private place to talk to each other. And that for some reason is extremely valuable to almost everybody. Yeah, I think that's what people get miss about referral programs. Like Robinhood's is great, right? And why is it great? Because they give you a share or a fraction of share of a share, and like it just fits so well with the product messaging. If Robinhood gave you the same amount in just do U.S. dollars, like hey, here's five dollars. Like I think it's PayPal who did that or does that still. It does. It the messaging is not perfect, but the messaging is perfect with sign up for Robinhood and get a stock. Refer, get a stock. Like. It keeps you in that mindset. If you're going to refer your friends to Robinhood, you probably really like investing in stocks. Do you feel like you as, a, as an individual need to have a big audience? And if so, why? Just for being an investor or other reasons? I, I think it's important for a few reasons. Number one, I didn't start off intentionally growing my Twitter audience. I just wanted to tweet more and be active on Twitter. And for me, it's been like a little bit of a... Of a, it's like a snowball, right? I started off beginning of 2019 and I tweeted some stuff and someone really awesome who I idolized, right? I looked up to her, I admired, DM me. I was like, hey, would love to chat. I was like, he wants to chat with me. That's not how, or she wants to chat. I was like, that's not how it works. That's not how it should work. And that kept on happening. And it was really, really cool on the way up. I, I made these relationships and met these people. I mean, you, for example, I've met all these awesome people. I otherwise have no, would have, I wouldn't even, I would probably even know what indie hackers, if not for Twitter, like it's where I learn about so much stuff. And so it's really cool. And I think it keeps on growing. Now, part of me wanting to grow my following is like, there is a definitely some, some vanity, some like, yeah, I want to like, why, yeah, it's like a, why not? Like, yeah, a 60,000 school, a hundred thousand schooler, quarter of a million schooler. But recently, and I think this is why I've stopped tweeting is, and then this is probably not a good personality trait, but there are some negative side effects when you get over 50, 60, 70,000 followers, which is the people who start to follow you, not only do you not know them anymore, but you probably don't even know people who know people who know them. People start to view you as like a public figure, not as a person. And it's not said that I get insulted by the responses because I don't, but it's like, I don't want to deal with this. You know, I just, there's just so much criticism and like, I just like, don't, you know, so like, I, I just don't need to deal with it. Right. Like, you know, I, I I've gotten a lot of what I want to get out of it. And I, I, I mean, like I was thinking about today, like I should get back to tweeting more because I do love the thing I like about Twitter most is I learn so much from other people. I love for someone to learn anything from me, but you get to a point, it's like, oh, I just don't want to deal with all this, all this negativity. There's something about large numbers where like you got 70,000 followers on Twitter, like all right, like what is like one in 70,000 people capable of? Like it's probably like, you know, at least one or two murderers in there. There's probably, you know, like, I don't know, a couple thousand extremely negative Nancys who are always going to shit on whatever you have to say. And like, it just gets stressful. And when you have a, a much smaller number of people, you just sort of quality control. Those are the people that you know, the people who authentically like you. So I'm right there with you. And I, I was talking to Austin Arbett about this the other day, actually. He has a huge Twitter account. I think he's at 150,000 followers or something like that. And he was talking about how during the pandemic, he said something that wasn't related to the pandemic. And people were like, how dare you talk about something that's not this? And it's like, I just can't imagine being someone who's like trying to police what someone else is saying on Twitter to force them to talk about a particular, you could just unfollow them, right? You don't have to manually like voluntarily follow this person. 
And that's like only a thing that happens once you're beyond a certain size, you know, below that, no one really cares. I don't know. It's interesting to hear your perspective because you have like these two audiences on Twitter and through your company. And I think most people I talk to only have one, you know, either their company's big and they don't care or, you know, their Twitter profile is big and they, they're working on that and not focusing on their company. Yeah, I mean, we're it's unique, right? Because we are a content company. And my belief at Morning Brew is that anyone who wants to be a content creator can. It doesn't mean anyone's going to be monetized, right? But but everyone adds value. And so a lot of our employees create great content. Our salespeople create great B2B newsletters to send to our clients. One of our software engineers just wrote up a tweet storm. Hey, this is what I've learned in the last six months. That's all. I love that. That's awesome. That does come with some liability. You know, it comes with... People are going to make mistakes. We've made mistakes. We've done some bad things. Not not like intentionally, right? But we've tweeted some things where in hindsight, we're like, yeah, that probably wasn't a great tweet. But you can't get the, to some extent, you can't have the good without the bad, right? If you're going to be empowering your employees tweet, you can't monitor every single character that comes out of, uh, comes off their keyboard. And so once in a while, something's going to happen where it's a conversation or it's a very tough thing to police your employees' Twitters. Well, it's pretty cool to have employees who actually care enough to want to tweet about what's going on. Because like, I mean, there's this whole build in public craze, right? If you want people to care about what's going on in your company, you should be transparent and talk about what you're doing. And so, for example, you've got, I don't know if he's still there, but his name is like Toby on Twitter. Yeah, Toby, Toby runs, our, runs our Twitter. He's amazing. Yeah. Well, he's like, here's a quick mini thread. And this is from his personal account on how the Morning Brew picks our subject lines for each email. And like, I remember reading this tweet and being like, oh, this is super useful. I should do this for indie hackers. And so like every morning when you're gonna send out an email, you actually come up with four different subject lines and you send each of those to 80,000 readers. And he says each batch gets a different subject line and whichever one has the highest open rate will go out to the remaining, you know, 2 million readers, which is super cool. And then he talks about how do you pick the subject line? And he's like, well, it's not even that scientific. We just sort of skim the newsletter for interesting and eye-catching phrases from the stories. And then the writer just picks one for the day and we roll with whatever they choose. And it's just cool seeing him like explain this on his Twitter thread and knowing like this isn't even like, like this is just like someone who's working at Morning Brew, right? And there's other Twitter threads that I found from other Morning Brew employees where I'm thinking, okay, well, how do I at any hackers also hire employees who are not only going to like build and create stuff, but also like share and build in public? Because that's not like a very common trait for the average employee. Especially in a media company. In some of these legacy companies, the Substack thing, right? So you have people starting Substacks and now the New York Times uh, is like, oh, no one can create a, a Substack. And that's okay. The New York Times can get away with that, right? They have the brand. They have the the prestige. They're going to be fine. They're the, the New York Times. But what's going to happen is a lot of these other businesses who aren't going to be fine are going to replicate that. And so I think it's – we have a bunch of content creators. You know, we we have to empower people to have a voice and and tell their story on the internet. And I think it's it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. I try to be a example of what people can do. And there are people who hate it and don't do it. And I'm totally fine with that. And there are people who love it and do it every day. And that's also cool. Another, I think, interesting thing that you've mentioned a couple times about the Morning Brew is that you basically retain your readers. And even in, in college, when you first started this, like your subscriber base was growing because people weren't unsubscribing. And I think a lot of people who are starting companies for the first time don't understand how important it is to be able to retain your users. It's just as important as finding the next user. And so I'm curious what your sort of model is for like why people who read Morning Brew are more retained than people who might read, I don't know, the next newsletter over or maybe someone's random Substack newsletter. What are you guys doing right that gets people to stay retained? And then I have my own theory and I want to hear what your opinion is on it. We built a, we built a habit, right? There's a lot of downsides to daily news or to, to writing daily. 
But the, the pro is it's a habit. People have a habit. They wake up every morning, they read morning brew. Most people do it the same time every day, whether it's right when they get out of bed, when they get to work. But we built a daily habit, and habits are hard to break once you build them. And so it's habitual, right? We're consistent. We never miss a day. We show up every single day in your inbox. And then the content is really, really good. Like it's something that I don't talk about enough because it's such a given, but it's, it, 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 it's so important to talk about. The content's unbelievable. If the content was bad, people wouldn't come back. It's just that simple. Right. Because let's say you have like 1% churn. You know, every time you send an email, 1% of subscribers are like, ew, you know, unsubscribe. Well, if you have 3 million subscribers uh, and you're sending every single day, you're going to be down to like 2 million people by the end of the month if you have 1 million, like 1% churn, which is crazy. You're going to lose a third of your subscriber base versus if you only send, you know, a few times a month then you're gonna be down to something like, you know, 2.9 million, right? It's, it's way different. So the more emails you're sending, like the more important it is for you to basically have extremely low churn. And I think what's cool about news is exactly what you said. It's this habit. People already basically wanna know what's going on every single day, whether the morning brew exists or not. They're gonna to talk to their friends, they're gonna scroll Twitter, they're gonna to go to the New York Times, they're gonna find out some way to figure out, you know, what's going on. And I think that churn uh, is kind of a thing that happens once your product stops solving the problem that people have, or once they stop having that problem. And news is really cool because people just don't stop having a news problem. Like with Indie Hackers, our newsletter will send out, we used to send out at the very beginning, just like, here's the five founders that we interviewed this week about how they grew their businesses. And that was super cool. And it helped people who needed to be inspired and help people who needed to get started. But like needing to be inspired and needing to get started aren't problems that people have for 50 years on end. You know, they have that problem for a few months and then they get their solution from you and then like, okay, cool, unsubscribe. You know, I no longer need this. Even like the happiest users would sort of graduate from the newsletter. And so we sort of morphed our, our newsletter over time to be a lot more newsy, a lot more like, hey, we're gonna keep you up to date with what's going on in the Indie Actors community and the business world and a lot less like, hey, here's some evergreen story that you really only need to read once. And if you've read it somewhere else, then probably don't need this newsletter anymore. But there are downsides news. It's hard to monetize the news. It's also new content every day. We don't get a second chance at it, right? You can create an email drip about becoming an indie hacker and you can A-B test that email drip a hundred ways. We can't A-B test, yeah, we can A-B test the subject line. We can't A-B test, hmm, does our audience like that first story? It's the news, we get one shot at it. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. One of your Twitter threads, you talked about basically, you know, here's like some things I've learned over time, like, you know, running the morning brew and it's been what, like six years. And one of them said, here are 10 insights I've learned over the last five years uh, on startups, investing, marketing, and career advice. And your third piece of advice is something that's so funny because it's the exact opposite of what so many people say on the podcast. I usually end the podcast and I say, you know, what's your one piece of advice for everybody? And by far the most common advice is just get started. And then by far, like the second most, uh, most common piece of advice is just follow your passion and everything will work out from there. And your tweet says, follow your passion is complete crap. People are passionate about things that they're good at. So get really good at something and then you'll become passionate at it. And then you'll make enough money to follow your original passion and your free time. Does that describe how you've grown Morning Brew and other things that you've worked on? I am passionate about media. I am passionate about building a company. But I wasn't, like growing up, I wasn't like, damn, I want to build a media business. I, I got pretty good, I think, or good enough can always get better, but you know, good enough to be mildly successful building a media company. And it feels much better to do something and be good at it, right? I, I love basketball, but I'm a 5'9 Jew. I was not going to make the NBA. I'd be pretty miserable trying to, to play professional basketball right now, even though it was my passion, because I wasn't good at it. And so 
again, there's counterexamples, right? There are plenty of people who do something they love, you know, do something that, that doesn't make a lot of money, um, but they love it. And that's totally fine. I think that's the minority of people. I think most people should do something that they're really good at. So yeah, get good at something and then you like it, right? Like people run like distressed debt hedge funds. No one likes distressed debt. One of my good friends is a middle market industrials, in middle market industrials private equity. There is no way he grew up was like, oh, that's the industry I want to be in. But he got good at it. And so he starts to like it. And then you can do things in your spare time that maybe are more like your passions, your traditional like hobbies. But yeah, I don't recommend people trying to do their hobbies, their profession, unless you have potential. You got to check multiple boxes. And I think everybody wants it to be one answer. Just follow your passion. It's like, okay, well, that's one box. But what about like being good at it? You know, what about having a strategy? What about all these other boxes? And if you ignore them, then you're just significantly less likely to succeed. And you're always going to be able to go out in the world and find, you know, two or three stories of someone who didn't do any of that and they succeeded. But if you look at the denominator of everybody who tried doing it that way, like who tried only having a passion and nothing else, then like it's way bigger than two or three stories. It's like two or three people made that work out of millions. And so it's a little misleading sometimes. Yeah, it's like it's like LeBron James followed his passion. I would assume you're not LeBron James. Like I would just, you know, and, and, and you're a believer, like that's fine. Like you, but, but I would just guess like you're not LeBron. Well, there's also something to be said, I think for this, this thing you're saying about skill, which is uh, there's this book Drive and the author talks about like, what are the three things that drive you to do well at work? And they're mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And that first one is just mastery. People who love their jobs and people who are good at their jobs have mastered their job. There's something good about like when I sit down to write code where I just feel competent when I'm writing code and I'm blazing and I'm like, I'm writing this so much faster than I could have five years ago, so much faster and better than most people could. And it just feels really good. And then having a purpose, you know, for you, maybe you're keeping people informed in a much better way, like, but otherwise they wouldn't be informed because there is no newsletter that actually does it in a conversational way that they want to read. And then there's autonomy, which is what every indie hacker and every founder wants, which is you don't have a boss telling you what to do. You know, no one's breathing down your neck. You get to self-direct. And I think that, uh, you know, you could, you could validate whether or not that's true for you, but I have every one of those things at Indie Hackers and it makes my job super fun and it makes me better at my job. If you master something or you're very good at something, I think you'll have the opportunity for autonomy and I can't remember what the other one was, but I think you'll, you know, you, you give yourself optionality by being very good at something. Well, anyway, Austin, uh, we're about out of time. I'd love to have you on the show again because there's so many different things you tweeted about Morning Brew. Uh, and I'm sure in another year or two, you're going to be, I don't know, 5 million, 6 million subscribers going to the moon. But thank you a ton for coming on the show, talking about Twitter, humoring me with all sorts of interesting topics. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to and what's going on with Morning Brew? Yeah. So you can go to, you can sign up for Morning Brew at morningbrew.com. You can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore Reef, R-I-E-F. All right. Thanks again. 